Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to the Daily Daf Differently. I'm William Friedman, and today we're studying Ketubot 33. In yesterday's Daf, the Talmud struggled to find a source for the idea that in a conflict between imposing a monetary penalty or lashes, one imposes the monetary penalty. One of the potential sources cited was that of personal injury law, Chovel Bechavero. A significant chunk of today's daf explores why, in the case of personal injury, the court imposes a monetary fine as opposed to corporal punishment. As always, we'll start by reading and explaining the course sugya, which is found about halfway through 33a, and then try to play out what's at stake in the argument. This one is a long, multi-step, multi-step proof, so we'll take it slowly in stages. Rav Shisha Bereid Rav Idi Amar, Chovel Bechavero Nami Mamona Mishalim Umilkalo Lake. So Rav Shisha, the son of Rav Idi, said, Someone who injures his friend, he also pays money and does not receive lashes. We saw that already yesterday. Mehacha, from the following verse Vechi Natsu Anashim Venagafo Ishahara Vyatsu Yiladeha. So this verse is from Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 to 23. When two men fight and strike a pregnant woman, causing a miscarriage, but disaster, but disaster, a son, does not ensue, he is punished in the amount set by the woman's husband with the court's involvement. But if, his, but if a disaster, a son, does occur, you give life for life. A son here, pretty clearly, according to the simple meaning of the verses, means does the woman die or not, and has nothing to do with the fetus. So they cite this verse. Ve'ama Rabbi Elazar, b'matzut ha'katuv midaber. Rabbi Elazar said, the verse is talking about matzut shibimita, a fight to the death. How does he know that? Dichtiv because the following verse says, if a, if a disaster, an ason, does occur, you give life for life. The only case in which you would give life for life is if you kill somebody, murder somebody. Therefore, there must have been lethal intent to begin with. As the Gemara is about to ask, what's the situation? If warning, formal warning, was not involved, how could he be killed? In other words, in order for there to be nefesh tacha nefesh, in order for there to be a death penalty, there must have been a warning in advance. There could only have been a warning in advance if there was clear lethal intent behind the fight in advance. Ella, pshita da rather, it's obvious that warning happened. Umutrele davar chamor heve mutrele davar kal. Now, this is an assumption that the Gemara is inserting here, that somebody who was warned about a more serious crime is also implicitly considered warned about any lesser crime, 
In other words, if I warn somebody and say, hey, if you kill that person, then you will get the death penalty, and that person says, Almanat Cain, even so I will do it, they are also considered to be warned, for example, about the consequences of any lesser derivative crimes, for example, the consequences if they injure somebody. Now, warning would only have to be in place if one of the lesser one of the lesser penalties for a lesser crime than murder were lashes. The Torah, however, Amar Rachmana, the merciful one that always refers to verses, says, ason, anesh. But if there's not an ason, if there's not a death that occurs, anesh, he is punished based on the monetary value that the husband assigns to the fetus. In other words, we might have thought that the person would have gotten lashes, but when the verse explicitly starts talking about money, that tells us that money takes precedence over lashes. That's the proof for Rav Shisha, the son of Rav Idi. Now, there's a number of links in that chain of logic, and it can be attacked on several lines, and Ravashi does that. He attacks it, in fact, in two different ways. Matkifla Ravashi, Ravashi attacks it. What's the source for the idea that somebody who is warned about a more stringent crime is implicitly warned about the more lenient crimes that are related to it? Maybe that's simply untrue. Now, Ravashi doesn't defend this, but he suggests it. He says, your assumption about if I warn you about the more serious one, implicitly you're warned about the less serious ones, maybe that's simply untrue. Now, he doesn't have to pursue that because he has what in his mind is a better attack. And if you say that, okay, I accept your principle, it is as you say, how in fact do I know that death is more stringent? Now, that comes off as a little bit strange to our ears, right? Of course, the death penalty would be more stringent than lashes. But in fact, if you think about it, that's not necessarily true. You can imagine very well, and unfortunately we have all sorts of instances of torture reports and things that talk about this, some people would actually prefer death to prolong suffering. And in fact, now let's turn to the top of Amud Bet, the next folio. The Gemara continues and gives an example where that might have been true. Dilma Malkut Chamor, maybe lashes are in fact experienced as more stringent. Rav, as Rav said, now, this is going to take a little explanation also. There are three char characters in the book of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And each of these characters, as a group, actually, are sent by Nebuchadnezzar, the evil king, into a fiery furnace, Kivshan Ha'ish, because they don't want to worship an idol. <laughs> so Rav says, ah, let me think about that for a second. It's only because they were threatened by death that they decided, okay, I would rather die than worship the idol. But had they been th had they been whipped, if they had been whipped, then actually they would have given up and they would have worshipped the idol. In other words, according to them, according to this kind of bizarrely precise reading of the story, that 
lashes were would have been experienced by them as worse than death, and they might have actually failed in their commitment to God and not worshiping idols. Now, that immediately gets attacked along actually a very interesting line. Amar le Rav Sama Rav Asi le Rav Ashi, v'imri la Rav Sama Rav Ashi le Rav Ashi. So the Gemara does this sometimes where it gives you two different chains of tradition. It's not sure who is reporting it or exactly what the lineage of the person reporting it is. So Rav Sama, the son of Rav Asi, said to Rav Ashi, or perhaps it was in fact Rav Sama who was Rav Ashi's own son, says to his father, one or the other, doesn't it matter to you? Is there no difference to you between lashes that have an end and lashes that don't have an end? Now, what's he talking about? He's saying that, okay, I agree that sometimes under some circumstances, people would rather die than experience the torture of being beaten. However, that only happens when they are when there's no limit to it. You don't know when the torture is going to end. That's what happens when Nebuchadnezzar and other foreign evil governments are le- are whipping you. They have no control on them. But the court, the Jewish court, we have a limit. The Torah sets a limit of 40 lashes, which the rabbis self-consciously reduced to 39 lashes. Right? You know it's going to end. And since you know it's going to end, of course lashes in the Jewish legal system are experienced as less chamor, less stringent, less painful than the death penalty. So that's how they come and reject it. They reject Rav Ashi's attack on the original suggestion. And so at this stage in the argument, the original proof text and the original line of argument stands. Now, at this point, the Talmud presents a challenge to the first link in Rav Shisha's claim, that when the Torah speaks of nefesh tachat nefesh here, what it means is a death penalty-worthy crime has actually taken place. The Talmud says, Matzkifla Rav Yaakov minahar pukod, that Rav Yaakov from this village, Nahar pukod, somewhere, if you really love your Babylonian geography, somewhere between Sura and Nippur, in any case, um, this person, Rav Yaakov, from Nahar Pakod, says, That all makes sense according to the Rabbanin. Da'amrei nefesh mamash, who actually read nefesh tachat nefesh as talking about life for a life, as literally as it seems to be in the Torah. El Rebbe, but according to Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Da'amar mamon, my ikalamemar. So Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi actually reads nefesh tachat nefesh here not as life for life, but in fact as money. Now, that actually results in a very somewhat strange, somewhat problematic conclusion, and we'll have to talk about this when we get to Masechet Sanhedrin, or whoever does the daf for that day. Um, But Rebbe actually thinks that even if the woman herself dies by accident, um, then money is actually charged rather than the death penalty being given. Now, actually, the reason for this is quite interesting, um, because basically Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi is saying that the only time the death penalty can in fact be given is when you have full intent to kill person X and you succeed at killing person X. But if you have full intent at killing person X and you accidentally kill person Y, in fact, we can't give you the death penalty there. So in other words, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi actually is constraining the application of the death penalty to only cases where the intent and the action match up together. 
And there's a justice to that. It seems unjust on some level, but there is a justice to it in the sense that it narrows the application of the death penalty. Um, and perhaps that's what he's actually uncomfortable about. Again, that's a topic for Masechet Sanhedrin. In any case, the Gemara continues and therefore has to suggest a new proof text. So, Ella, Amar Rav Yaakov min Mishmei Rava. So Rav Yaakov from this village, Nahar Pakod, says in the name of Rava, very famous, prolific fourth generation Amora who lived in the city of Machoza in, Babylon, in Babylonia. He says, Mehacha, comes from a different verse, earlier in Exodus chapter 21, actually. So the verse in Exodus 21, verses 18 to 19 say, when two men are fighting and one hits the other with a stone or a fist and he does not die, but is hospitalized, hospitalized obviously is a modern way to translate, but that's basically what it means, he falls to the bed, he's hospitalized. If he gets up and walks around outside on his walking staff, the striker is cleared. In other words, the one who injured him is cleared, i.e. cleared of guilt of potentially killing him and must only pay medical expenses and compensation for lost work time. So here it's clear that if the victim dies rather than get up from the bed, the striker would in fact be obligated for death. So from here, the same exact logic applies. And you can read this in the original, um, but in fact, this is one of those interesting places where the Talmud repeats basically verbatim all of the argumentation from an earlier version, an earlier part of the sugya, and just applies it to a different proof text or a different position of a sage. Um, so I'll just play it out in English, and you can read it in the original if you would like. So from here, the logic applies. In or A, in order to apply the death penalty, he must have been warned. Warning includes lesser consequences, which we would have assumed meant lashes, but the Torah explicitly says that he pays money, the medical expenses and the time lost from work, rather than receiving lashes. Ravashi then attacks the same exact way, and his attack is refuted identically. What's actually really, really interesting here is that we in fact have a different ending. There's a twist. Matkifla Rav Meri, this person, the sage Rav Meri, attacks again, and he says, How do I know that in fact the initial fight, the initial attacking, was about, was intentional, mazid, and therefore vinika, he is cleared, means he is cleared from the death penalty. Dilma Bishogeg, maybe there was no murderous intent to begin with, vinika mi galut, and in fact what he is cleared from is galut, is exile, right? If you kill someone without the intent to kill them, then the punishment is not the death penalty, but exile to a city of Levites. And in fact, the Gemara has no response. Kasha. That's the end. So therefore, we have no clear proof that Rebbe would agree that monetary payment supersedes lashes in a case of personal injury. So now, it's worth pondering. Is there a substantive reason that someone, like Rebbe, who severely limits the applicability of the death penalty to only an intentional murderer who kills her intended victim... Would such a person maybe, for real reasons, be hesitant to only impose monetary fines in assault cases rather than punishing them with lashes as a criminal penalty? Perhaps such a position thinks lashes are a better deterrent to violence than fines, and he wants the freedom to impose which punishment seems more appropriate in the case. 
In any case, the majority opinion envisions a stark split. When the initiator of violence kills, she or he receives the death penalty. When injury results, restitution is paid to the victim rather than giving corporal punishment to the assailant. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epic Horus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.